0: Good evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Greetings all and welcome back to your second installment of Hometown Legends. Legends of the West. Now if you thought the first half was good, wait until you hear what our Western callers have in store for you this evening. Now as a quick reminder before we get started this week, this two-part Hometown Legend finale is also a bit of a competition between the eastern half of the United States and the western half, the Mississippi River, creating that particular barrier. So without further ado, let's get this thing started. And it's just this side of the Mississippi River that we begin tonight's paranormal pilgrimage. Please join me in welcoming Jeff from
1: Texas to the program. Hey Derek, this is Jeff in Texas with a story for hopefully a hometown legends show. Though it's not my hometown, it's one of my favorite and most haunted places in America, the city of New Orleans. This experience is related to the legend of the arrival of the earliest vampires arriving there in the 1700s. My partner and I traveled to NOLA for Halloween a few times. So this took place, uh, it would have been before Katrina hit. I think it was 2003 or 2004. We arrived in town late on Thursday night and after checking into our hotel in the French Quarter, we decided to go out for a drink. We each had one beer, but we were just so exhausted from the long day of travel that we decided to call it a night and my partner didn't even finish his beer. The hotel we were at took up most of a block in the French Quarter It's comprised of several old buildings that had been converted and added to the hotel over the years. Our room was on the first floor, accessible through this big common courtyard. And there was a little portico or something that led to our door, with a gas lamp burning just outside our door. There was a locked wrought iron gate right outside our room's door as well that looked out onto Ursuline Avenue. The windows in our room were actually the upper half of two French doors along the street that each had a couple of deadbolts and were secured with crossbars as well for added security. They were concealed by thick drapes that covered window shears that were drawn for privacy but allowed in a little bit of daylight. And unless you pulled back those shears, you wouldn't even realize that the windows were actually those French doors. Anyway, my partner and I hit the bed and both immediately fell into a deep sleep. When we awoke, it was already mid-morning and we were both very groggy. But I had experienced a very vivid dream and I immediately said, I had the weirdest dream last night. And he immediately replied, me too. So I told my dream first, telling him that in mine, I had been awakened in the night by him pulling back the heavy drapes and shears over those doors. And he was trying to unlock the deadbolts. Pulling up on the security bars, he was trying to open those doors. In my dream, I felt frozen. I could barely move and just kept trying to yell at him to stop. Don't let them in. But my voice was weak and would barely come out. It was almost like sleep paralysis, which I've experienced several times in my life. But this definitely had a different feel to it. He just kept telling me it was okay they just wanted to come inside for a little while as i conveyed my dream to him his eyes had gotten wider and his jaw dropped a little then he started to recount that he had the exact same dream except that he was actually trying to open the doors though he couldn't remember exactly who they were that wanted in and he remembered me trying to stop him but that's where our dream ended We both started to wonder then if something really had happened with our hearts in our throats. We slowly pulled back the heavy drapes to reveal that the shears behind them were completely open had been pulled back. The security bars across both doors had been open and were just hanging there, and a deadbolt on each door had been unlocked. Luckily there was another deadbolt on each door that could only be opened from the inside with a key. We both just stared at each other as we tried to reckon with the fact that something very strange had happened that night, and it wasn't a dream. So the next evening, we met a woman while eating dinner at a pub, and she invited us on a ghost tour that she led nightly. She was really cool, was originally from London, and had a thick British accent. We agreed with her that we would help her by actively participating in the tour, giving feedback, ooing and eyeing at the various stories along the tour stops. There were about 18 to 20 people in the group, and as we neared the last stop, we realized that we were turning the corner onto Ursuline Avenue, the street that our room faced out on. She stopped the group just outside that wrought iron gate that was just on the other side of our hotel room door. So we were about 10 or 15 feet from our room. And then she pointed, though, across the street to the Ursuline Convent, which was completed in the 1750s and is now one of the oldest buildings west of the Mississippi. So the short version of the legend is that King Louis XIV of France began sending over young girls under the care of priests to help colonize the city. The girls were often very gaunt and pale when they arrived from their long journey across the Atlantic, and some even had tuberculosis by the time they got here, so they would be coughing up blood. They dragged behind them into the convent large wooden boxes containing their possessions that the locals thought looked like caskets, so thus the legend of the earliest vampires colonizing the French Quarter was born. Our guide explained that over the centuries, many had reported feeling they were being stalked by an unseen dark presence while passing by the convent at night. What she had done throughout the tour, she asked if any of us had any personal experiences or questions. We had said nothing to her before the tour about our experience the night before. We honestly still didn't know what to make of it ourselves. But as she shared this story, my partner and I had barely been able to hold it together and keep quiet because we didn't know the story about the convent or the vampires either until she told us that. I remember telling the group our experience from the night before, my voice was trembling and nervous with excitement, probably fear, thinking as I told it how crazy I must sound. When I finished, I could tell the group really didn't know what to make of it. It was a good thing that that was actually the last stop on the tour, because I don't think anything could have topped that story. We had hit it off with the tour guide, and she asked us out for drinks after. She thanked us for the great story we had told. She thought that we had actually made it up for her benefit so that she could get more tips at the end from the others. When we told her our story was 100% real, she was floored. She just couldn't believe it. So she shared with us some of the personal experiences that had been shared by others during her tours, like the scariest of the scary and her own personal experiences. But she said that nothing compared to what had happened to us in our story. She even asked our permission to tell that story to future tour groups, which we thought was pretty cool and said, sure. So I wonder if anyone else listening here ever went on her tour and heard about our personal experience. Well, that's my story for tonight. I'm sure I'll share more in the future. Thanks, Derek. I've been a Patreon supporter for about a year now. I encourage other listeners to do the same to support your podcast so that everyone continues to have this forum to share our strange and personal experiences.
0: Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for plugging the Patreon page. No word of a lie, Patreon is by far the most direct way to support the program, or any podcast you happen to listen to, I reckon. All I can tell you is, my Patreon supporters almost single-handedly keep the show going, week in and week out. Now, back to New Orleans. I really need to get myself to that city. Sarah and I had even discussed planning a trip for spring of 2020... I think we all know how that played out. Having never been there myself, I can only repeat things I've read, watched, or heard. But of all the things the Big Easy is known for, to even someone that's never been there, I know that vampires would be near the top of that list. Of course, the city is the fictional home of Louis and Lestat, of Interview with a Vampire. Then, of course, the Coffin Girls that Jeff spoke of, then there's the legend of Le Comte de Saint-Germain, or sometimes referred to as the Count of Saint-Germain. But more on him at another date. But it's a story that most outside the city probably don't know that we're going to talk about this evening. The vampiric Carter Brothers.
2: You might know that the cemeteries in New Orleans use above-ground vaults rather than burying their dead. This is partly because of the fact that the low altitude of the city means its water tables are high, and flooding could cause bodies to float up out of the ground, and partly because the French and Spanish also used above-ground vaults. What you may not know is that in order to fit entire families into these tombs, old coffins are removed after a year or two to make room for new ones, with the remains placed back into the tomb, sand box. Hold on to that fact, you'll need it in a minute. According to legend, John and Wayne Carter were brothers who popped up in New Orleans during the Great Depression and worked at the docks. In 1932, an 11-year-old girl escaped their apartment in the French Quarter and fled to the police. She said the brothers had been feeding on her. When the police entered the apartment, they found four other people bound up and bleeding, and many others already dead. It took eight men to restrain the Carter brothers when they returned home. They were put to death. And when their tomb was opened to retrieve their coffins a year later, their bodies were gone.
0: That segment courtesy of Grunge on YouTube. And apparently, many of these places still exist. Like the home of the Carter brothers. You can even take one of many tours to the French Quarter and see and learn all about these historic haunts. Even if the monsters are dead and gone. In fact, while you're out walking around, stop by the New Orleans Vampire Cafe. It's located practically across the street from the Carter's previous vampire den. WWLTV CBS News 4 out of New Orleans caught up with the owner, Marita Crandall, on opening day earlier this year.
3: So Marita Crandall joins us this morning. Her new restaurant, the New Orleans Vampire Cafe, offers a dining experience that you won't forget.
4: Well, people come to New Orleans for the magic, and so, you know, the tours do amazing, even now with pandemic, there's still tours on every corner because people come to this beautiful old French Quarter, and they want to find out about the spirits and the vampire lore. We're lucky enough to have three legends of vampires here in the quarter, and so we're literally right across from one of the legends, the Carter Brothers' home. And I think, you know, people, they they go on the tours, they come to the little shops, and then they want more. And so now they have a place where they can actually dine and escape for a minute and uh, live the life of a vampire.
3: That's more than just food. Tell us a little bit about
4: that, tea leaf readings. Yes, so we have, uh, do yourself tea leaf readings. So you actually get the teacup, you get to leave with the teacup, which is really fun. We tell you how to do it, um, and it's just a lot of fun. Also, um, we have a tarot reader here, and you can order off the menu and blood types. So instead of ordering a gin and tonic or you know one of our specialty drinks, you're ordering a, a B negative. So you're kind of in the experience.
0: Now that's what I'm talking about. A vampire cafe. You know, one of these days I'll finally make it down there. But until then, thank you, Jeff, for sharing the experience. Now maybe you're sitting there thinking, I have a good story for this show. Well, what are you waiting for? Call the hotline at one 888 608 That's 1-888-608-6444. Or visit the website at MonstersAmongUsPodcast.com for more submission options. I'm staring at a long list of hometown legend submissions, wondering who I'm going to pick next. How about Brighton from Utah, what do you got?
5: Hi, my name is Brighton Williams. I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm calling about a, it's like a hometown legend type thing. There's this place in Utah and it's called Butterfield Canyon. And everybody that, that goes up there or, you know, it's kind of like a teenager party place, stuff like that. But. The stuff that has happened in butterfield canyon is is what the the, the scary part is it's, nothing ever happens good up there there's a a legend up there about the red-eyed girl and everybody that that goes to butterfield canyon knows about the red-eyed girl people have seen the red-eyed girl i've seen the red-eyed girl like every time you drive up that canyon at night you get a weird feeling you don't feel good and there's a ton of stuff that goes on in that canyon like there's men body parts found and there was a bunch of suicides up there people killing themselves also there's a tree that somebody hung themselves on with a noose and that noose is still there to this day and every time somebody or the cops go and take it down it goes back up. So every time you drive up there, you'll see that noose on a tree. And cops have tried to take it down, but after they take it down, a new one goes up and nobody knows who is doing it or why they're doing it. But that's a big thing up there. They found body parts saran wrapped, like tons of people's body parts just saran wrapped, scattered. It's just a bad canyon. And if you live in Utah, you probably know about All these stories about the red eyed girl and everything. So, my experience with the red eyed girl, it was me, my girlfriend, and my friend and his girlfriend. They were in the backseat of my truck, and we're like, hey, let's go drive up Butterfield Canyon. Uh, Once again, this isn't that, it's not a safe canyon. There's been car accidents there. I know somebody that got in a really bad car accident and is paralyzed now up in that canyon because the the road is is really small up there it's like a one lane it's it's just a it's not a safe place to go hang out but one night we we're like let's go drive up butterfield canyon and see if it's open because they close it down in the winter time because the roads are so bad so we we drive and it it's it's kind of off the grid so we drive and there's a gate that's locked for when it's closed but we get up to the gate, and there was a bunch of cars there that didn't have anybody in them. I'm not sure what people do up there, but every time I drive up to that gate, there's always cars there with nobody in them. I don't know if people go and hike up the canyon, but I I don't see why they would hike up the canyon in the wintertime. So I get to the gate, we see that it's closed, so I turn around, and in order to turn around, you have to kind of pull into another dirt road that's also fenced off because it's somebody's property up there but like everybody in my truck started getting a weird feeling like as soon as we got there we didn't even really want to go up there anyways so we in the process of turning around i pull forward into the into the dirt road and then i start backing up And as i look in my mirror i see a black figure with red eyes right behind my truck And I'm like, oh my gosh. And all my friends, like they they knew exactly what I was looking at. They looked and saw it in the mirror too. And they were like, holy crap. So I floored it out of there and I got out of there as quick as I can. And that's the red-eyed girl. Like everybody in Utah knows the red-eyed girl or at least that goes to Butterfield Canyon. There's a bunch of people that hammock up there that all tell their stories of the red-eyed girl. There's other weird stuff that happens up there too. People say that there's, like people that transform into animals and stuff like that, I can't remember what those are called. But everybody thinks that there's a, sh- a shapeshifter. Yeah, everybody thinks that a shapeshifter is up there too as well. They've seen animals change, and it's just a weird canyon. They like you can go up there, and deer will come right up to you and not do anything. Like they won't run away. They're not afraid of you. It's like they're the shape shifters almost like they kind of like stalk you the deers like act like you're like a meal for them like a blade of grass or something it's weird i have a bunch of other stories that i love to tell about utah like lake pal so i'll call again soon thank you
0: thanks brighton butterfield canyon you know i have the butterfield overland mail stage line in my mind one of the old stagecoach lines that ran through the Borrego Triangle back in the 1800s. Synchronicities or coincidence or just my brain making connections. Anyhow, when one thinks of the state of Utah, dangerous canyons certainly come to mind. Although the expected dangers, rattlesnakes, lions, the heat, taking a tumble and falling a great distance, or just getting turned around... With finding a box of body parts and hearing about tales of murder and kidnapping. That shouldn't be on the list, but I ran it through Google and, well, it checks out.
2: Right happening right now, police are investigating a suspicious death in Salt Lake County. News specialist Nicole Val has more now live from the base of Butterfield Canyon. Nicole, what did you find out? Well, Ashley, this is actually day two of that investigation. Police say the body was actually found yesterday, about four miles of the canyon from where I'm standing. The remains of an adult male, they say, were found inside a package wrapped in plastic, according to police. But it wasn't until today that medical examiners made that termination. Investigators say a couple of hikers happened upon this package yesterday about 20 feet from the road but were unsure of what was inside so they called police.
0: That clip property of KSL News out of Salt Lake City. And as far as this red-eyed girl is concerned, I scoured my resources but I was unable to find any documentation of this eerie entry. So if you're from the area, or just happen to have additional info on the phenomena, do me a favor, please reach out to me. However, until that info trickles in, thank you, Brighton, for sharing your hometown legend. Now up next, we venture to the state of Texas, where Deanna has our next spooky submission.
6: Hi Derek, it's Deanna again. I was calling with a story about Hawaii. I actually have some family history that stays back to Hawaii and friends and all sorts of stuff. I'm currently on season eight, episode three, I'm trying to get through everything and get caught up, but I'm enjoying not going through it too fast because I absolutely love your show. I tell everybody about it. <laughs> I listen to it at the dentist while I'm at work. You know, I, I, I'm always listening to the show. Anywho, getting back to my story. So I haven't heard anybody talk about it yet. I don't know if it could be considered hometown legends or, you know, just one of those spooky old legends. But when I was in, I think it was seventh grade, must have been about 2004. My friend, I actually just made that year, she moved up from Hawaii. She was an army brat. And she was, you know, reading this book about Hawaiian legends and stories about Hawaii and, you know, different kinds of things. And she was showing me, and I thought it was cool. You know, I'm like 12, (laughs) maybe 13 at the time. We thought we were super neat. You know how teenagers are, especially girls. So we were reading the story about Morgan's Corner. And from what I recall... Morgan's Corner is this lover's lane, almost, I guess, from what I understood. Couples would go there and, you know, do things, and sometimes, you know, it didn't go so well. Well, the story that we had read was that there was a couple who had gone up to Morgan Lane, and they had parked under a tree. They were the only couple in the parking lot and things were getting heated and heavy in the car and, you know, they were doing what teenagers do. They were making out and, you know, fooling around and all of a sudden the girl kept hearing some strange noises outside. I don't recall exactly what that noise was, if it was tapping on the car or if it was scratches or, you know, some kind of animal sound, but... She felt really, really scared and uncomfortable, and that immediately diffused the whole situation, you know, and she was no longer interested in Lover's Lane at that point. She she was like, go find out what's going on, and so he said, okay, you know, so he's, he's ready to go, and he's going to get out of the car, and he's going to leave her there because at this time, there were no cell phones, This was, you know, a long time ago, probably in, like, the 50s or even you know, a little later than that, but it predated cell phones and pagers. So he gets out of the vehicle and he tells her to stay in the car, to lock the windows and don't open the door for anybody but him. And she says, okay. So she sits in the car and, you know, she locks all the doors and the windows are up and she's just waiting and she's waiting and she's waiting and she's waiting. And, she's waiting. and you know, a long time passes and she's, she's really concerned. She doesn't understand why it's taken him so long to go get help and all of a sudden she starts hearing tapping on the roof of the car like tap 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 and she was really really concerned and you know she couldn't figure out what was making that noise it wasn't raining you know she didn't think there were any animals up in the tree she couldn't see anything you know because it was it was dark outside And being that she was under the tree, you know, it was even more dark. She didn't have any light from the moon or or anything like that. So she was very, very concerned. Some more time goes by, and all of a sudden, there's somebody at the car with a flashlight. And luckily for her, it was a police officer. And he says, ma'am, I'm going to need you to exit the vehicle. And she goes, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. You know, she's so happy because she thinks that you know this boyfriend of hers had gone and gotten help at this point and so she was she was super relieved and she you know she got out of the car well when she got out of the car you know there were several different police officers and they kind of had all their lights on and by that i mean their headlights they didn't have any of their you know warning lights or anything but they were telling her you know come on you know get out we're gonna we're gonna take you home, and she goes, "Well, where's, where's my boyfriend, or you know, the, the gentleman? Where'd he go?" So they're like, "Ma'am, we're we're really, you know, not sure what you're talking about, but we're gonna to have to ask that you don't turn around, don't look behind you, don't look at the, don't look at the car." And she she thought that was very odd, and so they they're escorting her to one of their police vehicles, and as soon as she gets a chance to kind of break away from their grasp. She turns around and she looks, and she can still hear the tapping. So when she turned around to look, she saw her boyfriend or whoever the guy was wrapped up in vines hanging above the car in the tree. He was bleeding, and so that's what the tap, 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 tap was on top of the car. She screamed, you know, she freaked out, and they, they put her in the, the vehicle. But I guess what had happened was the murder tree, supposedly, wrapped him up in vines and killed him. And uh, that's the story of Morgan Corner. You don't go up there at night. You don't go up there alone. You stay away from there, and you stay away from that tree because this tree is just a horrible, horrible tree. So that's my my hometown legend. I'm pretty sure... Some of the other listeners know about this corner and this tree and have heard the story probably in different variations. Like I said, we got it out of a book of Hawaiian legends and folklore, so it's probably a very, very common story. But anywho, I love your podcast. I think it's amazing. You've done a fantastic job. I started listening a couple of months ago, and I started at the very first episode, and I feel like I've been a part of the show since day one. Thank you for what you do, and I will talk to you later. Stay safe out there, monsters.
0: Now, there's never anything wrong with having a healthy interest in the unexplained. You're never going to believe this, but I've been into this stuff my entire life, and I turned out okay. At least, that's what they tell me. Anywho, let's dive into this brutal murder. Now, as you've probably suspected... The story of the dead boyfriend is in fact a fallacy. An urban legend I assume created to make a creepy place even creepier. But there was a murder on Morgan's Corner. And the reason for the death is plenty evil. Evil enough to stain the area with tragedy. In
7: 1948, March 10th, James Major and John Polakico escape from a work crew in prison. Somehow they make their way up here and they hide near Therese Wilder's estate. On March 11th, they're gonna rob the neighbor, but they happen to smell something that Therese Wilder is cooking, and they like the smell so much they decide to break into her house and rob her. They tie her to a, a chair, gag her, and they choke her to death. She suffers with a broken jaw. The two of them are arrested. And that's the factual story because in 1920, James Morgan built the estate that's just right above us here. And so that's how this place becomes Morgan's Corner. Because it's the Morgan Estate built on the hairpin turn or the corner.
0: That clip is courtesy of Career Changers TV and features local storyteller Lepaka Kapanui. You know, I suspect many of these hometown legends are rooted in some sort of truth. It's just that the real truth is often disguised by these embellished and classic tales. Especially when a tragedy like the murder of Teresa Wilder rocks a small community. I could see why they would want to not forget the tragedy, but at the same time find ways to make it less of a reality. Either way, thanks again, Deanna, for sharing your story.
8: Chasing you through the fields Through the mountains and rain If you knew how i Would you see me again? What if I get tired and I'm just a few steps behind? The boss says I'm fired if I show up late one more time. But I saw something in those trees look like something's hairy knees in the woods that call mine. Calls my name.
0: Now that's the LA-based band Senor Pinch with "Gone Squatching." A huge thanks to Noah for sending it in and for the awesome tunes. No, it's not easy to find cryptozoology-themed music, but there are a few gems out there. Now, speaking of cryptozoology, our next story discusses just such a subject. At least I think. Please welcome Hayden. From Canada to the program. Hi, this is Hayden. I uh, called last
9: time for uh, like a water worker story. This time I'm calling from a hometown legend. Well, in my hometown in Beamfate, Saskatchewan, there's a story about the uh, coyotes. It's kind of, they're called we call them rugaroos. I think that's just a butchering of the French rugaroos or whatever. I don't know, but um, they're these Native American spirits. I guess they're kind of like skinwalkers, but um, they go around and they haunt people. But here's the, the story I grew up hearing, that uh long, long time ago when the settlers first came to uh, to Rosh percy this southern, southeast Saskatchewan, they uh, pushed out the First Nations people, so the shaman witch doctor, whatever you want to call them communed with the spirits and demanded that they uh cause havoc and kill these white intruders but the spirits were like good like and they said no we can't that's an evil thing we can't do that you just gotta have to deal with them kind of thing but then evil spirits came to them saying oh no way we will uh we'll help you out all year but sh- this your tribe belongs to us now and so the shaman made the deal and the spirits possessed that tribe and they turn into the rugaroos who look like road killed coyotes kind of like disfigured coyotes who uh, go and uh, attack white people. They hang out out in the old caves around here and I don't know if I've seen some of them but I've uh, that this past fall of 2020, I saw some freakishly large uh, coyotes that I've taken shot. That nothing's happened. I don't think I hit hit them, but I cause I wasn't really trying to hit them. I was trying to just scare them off, and it seemed to to have worked. Yeah. Well, and that's the story of uh, my hometown. Uh, thanks for uh, having this podcast. Uh, thank you. Goodbye.
0: Thanks, Hayden. Hayden's story sounds very reminiscent of some of those originating out of the desert southwest. There was a photograph circulating around for a while that seemed to show exactly what Hayden described, snapped just outside the tiny hamlet of Elkhorn, Wisconsin, coincidental home of the Beast of Bray Road. It's a large, upright, wolf-like animal, with mouth agape, growling, snarling, or possibly panting. The most odd feature seems to be that of the front legs, which in the photo appear to be arms rather than legs, and they're gaunt, dare I say even skeletal. The left arm appears to be at best atrophied, and the right is simply bone now i've linked to that photo by Elkhorn, Wisconsin area resident Danny Morgan in tonight's show notes and monsters among us podcast dot com so go check it out and. Tell me what you think. And thank you again, sir, for sharing the entry. Now, folks, before we hit up this next one, a quick update on the side project we've been working on over the past uh, two years. The documentary film Shadows in the Desert, High Strangeness in the Borrego Triangle. Now, we venture out for our third and final shoot in less than three weeks. And then it's time to edit this all together. Now, we've had a few people ask but unfortunately rewards won't ship until the film is completed which luckily should be within the next six months to a year but that's all actually good news for you because that gives David and I time to open up donations to help recoup some unforeseen costs due to COVID and of course to allow those that missed it last time one last chance to get involved so check out the little flyer I have in the show notes or on our social media pages if you're interested be quick we're only leaving this up for a limited time. A huge thanks to all those involved, and we can't wait to show you what we've uncovered. All righty then, get your hiking boots on. Our next stop is in the state of Colorado, where Felicia shares her hometown legend.
10: Hello, my name is Felicia. I'm from Colorado Springs, and I have a hometown legend for you haven't heard it yet on the show so i decided just to call it in when we were teenagers we heard a story about gold camp road and basically there's three tunnels on the way up except for the third tunnel is shut off and the only way to get there is by hiking and the legend is that a school bus of kids that used to attend a school at the top of gold camp road were on their way to school one day when the cave collapsed on them and killed them. So when you drive through the caves, you're supposed to stop in the second cave, even though it's the third cave that actually collapsed. The first cave is just too short to like really be a cave. So you go into the second one and you shut off all your light and you roll down all the windows. And supposedly the kids will appear around your car. And some even say that they will push your car as teenagers we did this a lot and for me personally nothing ever really happened but we did hike up to the third cave to see if it was really blocked off or a cave in or anything and when we hiked up there it actually was barred off and the cave isn't completely collapsed in. It's just kind of like sharp rock at the bottom, so you could tell that it started to. But as far as knowing whether the school actually exists at the top of Gold Camp Road, I couldn't tell you. I didn't do any research, but I just wanted to call in. And But I did want to mention that my, my husband told me a story about when he was up there. He's a native to the Colorado Springs, Colorado area and told me that his second time driving up there when we were teenagers, after the second tunnel, because Gold Camp Road is a dirt road. It goes up the side of the mountain in the Pike Peaks region, and I left that out. It's completely spooky at night. It's dirt road, and you're going up and up, and you're going through these tunnels. And him and his friends did the whole deal. They shut the car down. They were in the second tunnel, and... They waited and they scared each other and spooked each other out. But on the way out of the tunnel, over on the side of the road was a guy standing on a rock wearing all black, a trench coat, and he had an umbrella in his hand and it wasn't raining out. And they were just totally freaked out and scared. And they're like, what's this guy doing? And he said that later on, when you get up to the third tunnel, there's a parking lot. And that's where you park your car to walk to the third tunnel to go see it. Because it is locked off. Vehicles cannot go up that road anymore. So he did see a car parked there. And they realized, okay, well, maybe that's the guy's car. And he's just there to spook the teenagers. Because, you know, it's now the... That parking lot is now, like, the hangout for teenagers anymore. And they just go up and scare each other and mess around, drink, smoke, whatever. So... I just wanted to add that Manitou Springs is right by Colorado Springs, and it actually has a museum there, and my husband was telling me about this, that shows the school bus driving through these dirt roads in the museum, and and Manitou Springs itself is kind of spooky. It's known for its witches and warlocks that live there, and Me and my husband spent our honeymoon there, and we could hear, like, screaming in the night and a lot of, like, spooky noises in the middle of the night. So I just wanted to add that in there, too, that uh, Manitou Springs is a a spooky place, and it's got a castle there and some pretty cool museums that definitely spook you out when you walk through there. So I just wanted to add that. We appreciate everything that you do. Thank you so much, Eric, and have a good one.
0: Thanks, Felicia. Well, I did Felicia's homework for her, but none of you are going to like the answers I have. It seems there was no bus crash. There were no deaths. There wasn't a tragedy at all. This isn't true at all, said Casey May, a paranormal hunter who lives in Colorado Springs. First of all, no bus with schoolchildren ever crashed in Tunnel 3. Since 1987 wasn't that long ago, you'd figure there would be some evidence that this happened. I couldn't find anything in any newspaper or any other records, and I looked for it pretty hard. The bus crash story has taken on a life of its own. Numerous paranormal research crews have gone into the area to investigate, and as the story gets told over and over, new information is added. The quote-unquote truth, according to May, is that in 1987, the rotted timbers of number three pulled away from the ceiling and walls and caused a partial collapse. No known persons were harmed during the collapse. The quote-unquote blood spots are actually rust that is formed because of how iron-rich the rocks are. Now that blurb is property of coloradocommunitymedia.com and an article written by Danny Summers. So, it's not good news for the legend. But having done some stunt driving on a gorilla production over on Pikes Peak once, I can tell you that the area is plenty spooky enough without that legend. But either way, we appreciate the entry, so thanks again, Felicia. Now, we still have more than a few stories to chew through, so let me do this quickly. Now, being that it's the season finale, I will be dark until September 9th. Now, I know that sounds like a long time, but... I will continue to release Patreon episodes over at patreon.com forward slash monsters among us podcast. For four measly bucks, you can listen to nearly 50 back episodes and catch all sorts of behind the scenes and bonus footage. And you can even do this you can cancel once season 12 begins. So this whole thing will only cost you about four bucks. And if it makes you feel better, I'll pretend not to notice. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash monsters among us podcast. Now, support from Patreon allows me to take these little breaks and do some behind the scenes work and, frankly, clear my head before the next season. So, for that, I thank you. Now, real quick, if I may, allow me to tell you about a pair of fellow paranormal podcasters that I think you might want to check out. Together, Hosts Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess produce a brilliant program called Astonishing Legends. So if you like deep dives on a variety of spooky subjects, and when I say deep dives, I really mean it. I'm talking 10 hours on the Patterson-Gimlin footage alone. Trust me when I say, you should check it out. It's like taking a college course on a particular paranormal subject. So if that's for you, look for Astonishing Legends wherever you get your podcasts. And do me a favor, make us look good. Tell them I sent you. Now this next one takes us to the state of Arizona. Crystal, the mic is yours.
3: Hi, this is Crystal calling from Arizona. This story specifically was for the Hometown Legends episode So this specifically takes place in Jerome, Arizona, and there's a pretty well-known hotel there called the Jerome Grand Hotel that apparently used to be a hospital used back in its heyday um, when Jerome was a little mining town. And so it was a a hospital that would take care of injured miners and like the small population of the town and stuff. And apparently there were a lot of deaths, obviously, um, due to mining incidents and stuff there. And so back when I was 18 years old, as a high school graduation trip to ourselves, my friend and I decided to treat ourselves and we booked a room at the Jerome Grand Hotel because part of the appeal is we'd heard it was haunted and so we wanted to check it out for ourselves. And so we stayed there for one night and this was kind of the first time I think in my life i ever experienced this kind of stuff. So the first thing that happened we noticed was that the tv would come on by itself but would be kind of like staticky and my friend and i agreed before we took this trip like we're not going to play pranks on each other or anything like that because we were both kind of nervous in the first place about staying in a haunted hotel so we noticed that and we both swore up and down like no i didn't turn the tv on did you no okay like we promised each other no pranks or anything like that so we kind of explored the hotel and it's like a really neat little place even if you're not into to ghosts they have like an old Otis elevator that's super unique and it's the whole place just kind of has like a I thought it kind of had like a heavy feel but I also kind of like that style that they used back then so it's still kind of a neat destination but that night we got a room with two beds and the beds in this hotel room were on opposite sides and it was a large a really large hotel room so not really the standard side as I say maybe twice the size so I was in one bed she was in the other and as I was going to sleep my friend had already gone to sleep before me but as I was drifting off I was laying in bed on my back and I felt like what felt like um someone sit at the edge of the bed and it almost felt like I had cats at the time and I thought oh my cat jumped up the bed and then, of course, you know, a second later, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm not at home. So obviously it's not my cat. But I could feel my feet go down on the bed a little bit. And at the time, I chickened out to see what it was. I was so scared that I threw the blanket over my head and eventually at some point fell asleep. I woke up in the middle of the night and every single light in the hotel room was on for some reason. There were two lights above our bed, two lights above my friend's bed, and then another one in the main room and the bathroom, and every single one of them was on. And when I woke up in the morning, they were all off. And once again, I had asked my friend, like, did you wake up and turn all the lights on? And she swore up and down, like, no, I didn't wake up at all last night. So just some weird things that went on. That was our experience, but reading online afterwards, because I didn't want to do any research going into it, so I wouldn't spoil my own experience. But apparently people have experienced all kinds of things like smell of smoke and things like that. So anyway, so that was my story. Um, Hope you can use this. Thank you so much.
0: Just a few weeks ago, me and my wife Sarah took a quick trip to the small mining town of Julian, California. And although we didn't stay there, the town also has a tiny little hotel. And it too is said to be haunted. But I'm going to save all that for our upcoming documentary. Now, side note, we also visited and toured the Eagle Mine just outside of town. It's fascinating how these gold miners from the late 1800s and early 1900s managed to move the amount of earth that they did. Now, there were more than a few moments where I was concerned by the close quarters. And you know I was praying to the earthquake gods throughout the entire experience. But just in case, I figured out who he would eat first in the event of a cave-in. But I digress. Thanks again, Crystal, for sharing the call.
8: I see the girl She sees me On all fours Coming through the trees A crimson light From a breaking dawn Back at camp they start to notice she's gone. I've been howling at the moon. Trying to shade this dark man blue. Midwest skies, they it's so cold. The last of my kind. I'm getting old.
0: That again is Senor Pinch with Dogman Blues. Now I enjoy all the music I share with you guys, but I have to say, this one just might be my favorite. So to the fellows over at Senor Pinch, just like 8-Bit and Captain Catfish, you'll always have a spot here. Especially if you were to say, write a Mothman song. Or perhaps a song about ghost lights. Maybe from one based on this story from Ryan. In Missouri.
7: Hey, Derek, this is Ryan from Southeast Missouri. We have something down here called the Farenberg Light. Now, this is a ghost light, kind of like a will of the wisp type thing. It's uh, located outside of Farenberg, which is on I 55 South in between Keewanee and Matthews on County Road 707. This ghost light can be viewed where an old train station used to be at that's no longer there. Train tracks are not no longer there. How you can kind of see what the train tracks went on Google Maps. The ghost light is seen, you know, along the railroad, it looks like a lantern, and uh, so the story goes that the conductor of this old train was uh, checking on the axles, he slipped and he fell and the train decapitated him. However, I think I may have solved the mystery that's been haunting this area for close to 100 years. My great-great-grandfather, his name was Louis Schuch, now he was from Germany. We'd know hardly anything about him because he died when my great-grandmother was two years old. Now, she was born in 1911 or 1910, something like that. He was a section hand on the railroad, and the story goes that he slipped and he fell, and the train ran over his legs. Now, Louis didn't die immediately. He died about two weeks later due to blood poisoning, and this is what my grandfather told me from his mother. And that was in 1912. Uh, like I said, my grandmother was born about 1909, 1910. Uh, so he, this is a confirmed death and it's on his uh, death certificate that he died because of the railroad. So uh, that's a confirmed story that may solve this Ferenberg life that's been haunting uh, for close to a hundred years or so. Uh, and this is, like I said, in Southeast Missouri. I just wanted to call it, it's a kind of a hometown legend. I think everybody knows about it around here, but I don't know if anybody knows about the backstory of Mr. Shook. I want to add though, Fairenberg is off of I-55. Of course, like I said, however, this town is not a town. There's about four houses there, backwoods. There's a cemetery there that's been uh, overgrown with trees, and me and my wife have tried to go down in there. It's in the middle of a field, and it's it's really bad. You can't see anything. We're trying to get down there and maybe clean it up a little bit. It's behind an old church that's been there since the 1850s. And so, uh, they were German from Pennsylvania. So I wanted to call that in and uh, let you know about it. And I do appreciate the show. I
0: love it. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Ryan. This is not a ghost light that was on my radar, nor does it seem to be on many others' radars. as well. I did some quick searching and found absolutely nothing on the subject. It's difficult when one of the most well-known spook lights is located on the other side of the same state. Your search results, no matter how carefully phrased, always seem to gravitate in that direction. Of course, I'm speaking of the Joplin or Hornet spook light in Joplin, Missouri. So since I came up dry, if anyone else has any additional info, I would love to hear about it. Or perhaps even see it if you have some sort of photographic evidence. And of course, it goes without saying, Ryan. Your family involvement, and of course, uncovering a possible source of the phenomena, well, it's pretty damn cool. So thank you again for taking the time to share now speaking of videos I'm about to start a new project that I'll be telling you about in season 12 but in the meantime I really need your personal experiences then captured on film or video if you happen to have a photograph, video or even an audio recording of uh, EVP or a ghost or a Bigfoot or alien, UFO, anything strange that you would otherwise report on the show only in video form please send it to mauvideosubmission at gmail.com. That's mauvideosubmission at gmail.com. If I decide to use your video, I'll be in touch. Now next up, we venture back to my general area here in Southern California, where Ian has a legend he would like to share.
11: Hi there, my name is Ian, and I'm coming from Santa Clarita, California. I have a few stories for hometown legends. Now, uh, Santa Clarita is a little bit um, north of Los Angeles. Uh, The biggest thing we have out here is Six Flags Magic Mountain, which is a big theme park, and uh, most notably known as Wally World from uh, Vacation National Lampoon. But anyway, I've had multiple friends. Everybody in high school works here, basically, at, at Magic Mountain. And I heard a few spooky stories that came out of that. The first one is that there's a massive observation tower that they have at the park. And you can see, basically, the whole valley and out to L.A. from there. But on occasion, the park is rented out at night. And they have to have people there to look at the top of the tower. So usually businesses is it out. So what I've heard from multiple people is at night when they've been posted up there, they see a little girl at the top inside the room in the observation deck. And it's freaked so many people out that literally, you know, people would have to draw straws to see who would be up there at night. The second one is the roller coaster there called Goliath. Unfortunately, a few people have died on that ride. Usually operators. I think someone got hit by one of the trams coming in and that there was a second death as well. But what's really interesting is that people would get radio calls late at night from Goliath after it was closed down, that the tram was coming back in and it was ready to launch. Now, for you to do that, you have to press a button on the command console I mean, and push a few things, that's what my friend said, but it just does it by itself every night. It's like the person that was killed from you know, when they were operating the ride would just kind of continue its job. The second one is we have a big park out here called William S. Hart Park, and it used to be a silent movie star. And he has his own property and everything out here. Of course he's dead, but the whole place is haunted. So I've had friends that have been security guards there that have worked there at night. And there are plenty of things that happen at night, either shadows, smells, But most notably, some of the basically items that William S. Hart used to have would be on display, specifically his pistol, his revolver. And it is usually unloaded in its case. And when people come the next morning, it's loaded and set, and no one goes in there at night. So supposedly they have so much stuff on video And they haven't released it to the public, just they didn't want, you know, bad people going there and, you know, doing rituals or whatever. And most notably, his sister, William S. Hart's sister, lived with him. So at the mansion, people have reportedly seen a woman in, you know, older clothing walking around the house. But most notably, uh, my friend had a security guard working there and said that on his night shift, one time he saw William S. Hart and pulled his gun at him. And the ghost walked up to him, pushed the gun down, and disappeared. Now, again, that was my friend saying what a guard saw, so who knows. But anyway, thanks for the stories, I hope you find these interesting. Good luck with everything.
0: Thank you, Ian. I actually know Santa Clarita pretty well. I've been to Six Flags several times, in fact. The only thing spooky I saw there was the amount of people. And I guess I thought Knott's Berry Farm, which is is south of L.A., was actually the filming location of Wally World. I guess I never put two and two together, but Six Flags makes a lot more sense. And I do love a good amusement park, and of course, amusement park stories. We'll have to dive deeper into that hole on a later episode. But thank you, Ian, for sharing that tale today. You guys know another way to help support the show uh, over these little breaks is to pick up some merchandise from the shop. And now couldn't be a better time because from now until we return on September 9th, everything in the shop is 10% off. So visit monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash shop or click the shop tab today. Well, folks, I hope you like barbecue as we're headed back to Texas. Stephen. Tell us your hometown legend.
12: Yo, Derek, what's up, man? This is Steven from Lubbock, Texas. And this is for one of the uh, hometown legend episodes. So here in Lubbock, there's a place north of town called Hell's Gates. And uh, it's right across the street from some lakes. There's like some Playa lakes up there. And then right across the street is the old Lubbock Cemetery and then directly behind it is what we call Hell's Gates so it is a old train trestle it's like a big like wooden bridge not in use anymore but I've been up there before and it is pretty creepy at night you know in high school you know high schoolers college kids go up there you know the local paranormal investigators go up there from time to time And there's been, like, shadow figures popping in and out from the train trestle caught supposedly back in, like, the late 80s and 90s. There was uh, satanic rituals done there by a local, you know, satanic cult or something. And it's a really weird vibe with it being right next to the lake and directly behind the cemetery. It's up on a a pretty big hill. It's kind of a a decent climb to get up there you know, loose gravel and everything. But they fenced it off before the city. It's probably fenced off still. You know, a bunch of old stories of lynchings happening off of that trestle. And Native Americans used to live north of Lubbock. So that's also tied into the lore. Train robberies. And it's just a a really creepy place. And not to mention right behind the old cemetery that's not used anymore. It's, a, it's it's a pretty old cemetery, like, you know, still, you know, it was segregated and everything. And there's something called, I believe it's called the Watcher, that hangs out around that whole area of the cemetery, Hell's Gates, and the lake. Like a dark shadow entity that, and there's a, a big, like, angel monument in the cemetery for Lubbock's first Hispanic officer that was killed in the line of duty it's a big angel and they say if you go to the cemetery and you see the angel and you don't go up and kiss its feet that the watcher will block you from exiting the area <laughs> but i've never seen it and i've been in the cemetery and i didn't kiss any feet but i didn't see it but you know that's our hometown legend Supposedly that train trestle is the way to go from the physical world to the supernatural.
0: So, yeah, that's all we got. (laughs) Thanks, man. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Stephen. It also wouldn't be a hometown legend if there wasn't some demonically named landmark mentioned. Thanks, Stephen, for hitting that quota. It sounds like somebody needs to invent a drinking game before Hometown Legends 12.
13: People like to be scared. They like to be shocked. They like to be horrified. They like to be on the edge of their seat.
2: The best place to encounter the paranormal in Lubbock? Hell's Gates. During the day, a popular biking and hiking spot. At night...
13: In a place you can die from fear.
2: Notoriously known for being the entrance to the underworld, it lies at the back entrance of the Lubbock
14: Cemetery. There's been suicides, there's been uh, bodies found,
2: there's been hangings. It's
13: such a scary place, there's a reason it's called Hell's Gate.
2: And now, the story says shadow people remain.
0: That clip was courtesy of KJTV, Fox 34, out of Lubbock. And you know, typically I'll do a quick Google search for every single call I receive. And if you can't tell, I like to watch local videos on the subject as well. And to be honest, I stumbled across this one, and it was just too funny not to share. That one guy was really going for it.
13: In a place, you can die from fear.
0: But giggling aside, thanks again, Stephen, for sharing the entry. Now up next, Rose in Oregon, as an entry for our enjoyment.
15: Hi Derek, my name is Rose and I'm actually calling from Eugene, Oregon. But this story is a bit of a hometown legend and it takes place in my hometown of Cameron Park, California. To get started with my story, this takes place when I was around probably 15 or 16, probably 2001 or two. And I lived kind of on the northern end of this little town, very kind of small town. And there was a lot of rural space still back then. And there was this big open field kind of behind the neighborhood where I grew up that we would just call the field. And there was all kinds of oak and scrub brush and there were a lot of paths. And it was just this big space that kids would go out and play you know paintball and run around and you know do crazy stuff but back a ways in um, i used to run around with these two other kids that we were really into spooky stuff and one of my friends uh, I'll, i'll just call him daniel he was very into this stuff he told us that there was this guy that lived on this land and we had never seen him we'd never seen his house and that he would ride around on, a, on a, a four-wheeler with his dogs and a shotgun and chase people off the land. Well, we had been playing out there, you know, our whole lives, and we'd never seen anything like that. And we used to go back there all the time and explore. Well, there were all these kind of old, broken-down fence posts and old barbed wire here and there, and, but there was no other evidence that anybody lived out there, except that there was also a, a ruin of a gazebo. It was like this old wooden gazebo that was totally rotten and breaking down. And then the other weird thing was there was a fallout shelter. So there was this big cement rectangular cube, you know, cement structure that was partially buried in the ground, but you could sort of jump down this like pit hole and then crawl into the entrance. And inside there was just bottles and all kinds of garbage that people had left in there and graffiti on the walls. It was a very spooky, creepy place, but there was also this old bike from, like, the 50s that had been sort of set up, like, to be a generator, and that's kind of how we realized that it was a a fallout shelter. So um, one of these days that we're out there, we're sort of just exploring around, poking around. It's probably dusk. Not even dusk. It's probably just late afternoon, and we're walking out there, and I'm kind of in the front, and we kind of come around this corner that I, I don't think we'd ever been down before, and suddenly, just out of nowhere, there's a house, and it's just like clear as day. This kind of beautiful kind of farmhouse. It was it was painted bright yellow with like a white white trim and a, like a I don't know if there was a white picket fence, but it felt like there should. And there was like mown grass, and this is like in the middle of this scrub oak area, this just totally like not used area. And none of us had ever seen this house. And we kind of stopped, like startled, like we just kind of came upon something that was not really meant to be seen. And in the distance, we hear the sound of dogs barking, like just full on, like, we're going to come and kill you kind of dog bark. And I literally just turned on my heel and I ran back the other way. And we all just like ran as fast as we could out of that place. So we got back to the street and we we kind of ran slash fast walk back to my house, which was closest. And we got into my room and we're just totally all abuzz with what what we saw. None of us really knew what we had seen, but we decided we were going to try to find that house again. So instead of... You know, getting the gumption to go back exactly the way we went, this time we decided we were going to drive, because I had a car, we drove the border of the field. So the the field was bordered on one side with kind of houses and apartment buildings. So we, we drove the three other sides of it, and because it, it was a recta- big rectangular property. And we didn't know if it was all one property or not. But so we drove, these are backcountry roads, just kind of straight away, One side was a main road and then the other two were just like dirt side roads. So we drove all the way along it and we didn't find a driveway. We didn't find another road going into it. We didn't see a house. There was nothing that we could see from the road. So we tried to look at maps. We tried to kind of look at aerial views. And this was kind of, I think, probably before Google Google Earth was a thing. So we were trying to figure out how we can see this house or like see maybe even like if it was like a ghost house where it's been. We kind of speculated for a long time about it and never really came to any conclusions. But it just added the kind of fuel to the fire of this, you know, mysterious old man that would ride around with a shotgun scaring people off the land. So um, that's my story. I hope you can use it. I really love your show. Uh, I've been listening to it for I'm all the way caught up and I'm a Patreon now. So you're doing wonderful work, and I just really want
0: to thank you. So that's my story. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rose. You know, in my brief research on this call, I thought I struck gold. I had a lead on a small town named Cameron Park, a buzz with paranormal activity, a witch's castle, a ghostly motorcyclist, and even a local folklorist writing a book on the town's mysterious happenings. Then, that's when I read the title, Cotton Bales, Goatmen, and Witches, Legends from the Heart of Texas. Apparently, it was the Cameron Park in Texas I was reading up on, rather than the one that Rose hails from. Oops. Regardless, we appreciate your entry, Rose. I actually didn't find much of anything on California's Cameron Park. Sometimes, you have to get more local and deeper than Google allows, so simply drum up some of this info. Well, at long last, we've reached tonight's finale story, but before Colleen scares the hell out of us, there's one more thing you can do to support the show, and this one is absolutely free. Please take a moment to rate and review the show on your platform of choice, if it allows you to do so. Five stars and a few words on why you enjoy Monsters Among Us will go a long way to grow our audience. And growth means more stories and possibly more than one episode a week. But we need the growth to sustain all that. And if you could also find it in your heart to share the show on your social media accounts. It's grassroots tactics like that that will help us break through to the next level. And we appreciate you getting us there. Now of course, please continue to tell friends and family about the program. And I can't thank you all enough for the amazing support. And now, with all of that out of the way, I present to you your final entry of Season 11. Please join me in welcoming Colleen from California to the program.
14: Hi, my name's Colleen. I'm in Orange, California. But my hometown legend has has been stated, which is the Black Star Canyon, so I'm going to go a little bit north, and so this is the hometown legend for California, and it's the Dark Watchers of uh, San Luis Obispo. Um, basically, they're human-like figures, like they might be like considered a shadow man or a hat man type figure, and they appear on mountaintops tops and uh, cliff tops, usually around dusk, or but they have been seen during the day, and they're just a black figure that watch, and when approached, they're not there. There's been a um, a legend for quite some time. Um, I know John Steinbeck wrote about them saying that he saw a dark form against the sky, a man standing on top of a rock in one of his stories. So it's been known about since at least John Steinbeck's time. Don't know if this is good enough for the hometown legends, but I saw your call for West Coast legends on Instagram, so I wanted to throw this hat in. Bye.
0: Thank you, Colleen. Oh yeah, the Dark Watchers. Those tall, dark, and mysterious entities have really grown in popularity lately. Now, not to sound like a hipster or anything, but I actually did a short video while visiting the Big Sur region a few years back. You know, back before the Dark Watchers were so cool. Now, for me, the video is cringeworthy, but for you, at the very least, you can get some good visuals of the area and where these things are sighted. I've linked to the YouTube video in tonight's shoutouts. And not to be nitpicky, and I know she's not a resident of the area, so I'll cut her some slack. But I believe Colleen was mistaken about the area the legend originates from. She mistakenly said San Luis Obispo, but I think she meant Big Sur. And for those not familiar with the legend, please allow Mike Chen of Beyond Science to fill you in.
13: The Santa Lucia Mountains, or the Santa Lucia Range, is a rugged mountain range located in the coastal area of central California. The Santa Lucia Range are the coast north of Ragged Point, forming a 100-kilometer wall of wave-dashed cliffs known as the Big Sur, to which the Pacific Coast Highway clings. It is a land of immense beauty and tranquility, where California condors fly high above its mountains and sea otters and elephant seals populate the turbulent waters at their base. But lurking within these mountains are the strange and mystified phantoms that stand motionless in long black cloaks, surveying the crags and peaks of the mountains of Santa Lucia. These unfathomable creatures have been spotted by travelers looking out to the sea after wearing broad-brimmed hats and sometimes carrying either a staff or a walking stick. But what is consistent in the description of those who have seen them is that they are always still, silent, and featureless. Those who try to get a good look at these fantastical beings fail because by the time that they attempt a second glance they have already vanished.
0: Now as far as legends go, this one is supposedly deep rooted. The Chumash tribe that call that region home are said to have legends of these beings going back centuries. Spanish explorers too recorded encounters and early Spanish settlers to the area also reported sightings. Poet Robert Jeffers and writer John Steinbeck also included these menacing apparitions in their work. Having spent some time in the Big Sur, I can tell you that the place is magical. It's dynamic and possibly even spooky. And although most of the shrubs, rocks, and trees look in one way or another like a human outline, especially high on the mountain, contrasted against the rising sun. But I can't help but wonder, is there perhaps some clout to it all? If these reports are accurate, and all these historical groups did witness these things, To me, something like that speaks volumes. A big thanks to Colleen for sharing the submission. It's certainly one of my favorite legends, and one that only seems to be growing in popularity. And that's going to do it for this season. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Keep the party rolling by joining us on social media. We have accounts at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. And the terrifying score you hear. Let's code at AG Music. And Carl Casey at White Bad Audio. Thank you so much for listening. And until next season. Tonight's bonus call is a fun little story from Patrick in the state of Oregon.
12: Uh, hey,
16: Derek. This is Patrick. I'm calling from uh, the northern Cali Coast. This is for the Hopetown Legends. Uh, I used to live in Portland, Oregon, and we would go to Cannon Beach a lot for weekends. And uh, I'd gotten very interested in a local legend there called the Bandage Man which is apparently this bandage specter that runs across the highways. Before you hit Cannon Beach, there's a stretch of highway. It's kind of creepy, and uh, there's a specter that's uh, known to be running up and down, jumping in the back of pickup trucks and attacking dogs. They say it's covered in bandages and rotted flesh. And uh, I had gotten very interested in the subject, so on my trips out there, I started filming stuff, I wanted to do a documentary on it, and I ended up going to the local uh, history museum there and talked to the director, her name was Elaine, and uh, she had heard about the bandage band as well, and she told me that she used to work at one of the local restaurants there, and one of her fellow co-workers had uh, come in early, early one morning, white as a ghost, saying that in her morning run, she was near that stretch of Highway 101 there, and had a uh, run-up on what she saw was a, a glowing figure that appeared to be covered in bandages. And I actually filmed this interview with Elaine and her telling this story. I'm actually trying to find the footage for you. But I always thought that was pretty creepy, and I had uh, tried to contact uh, other local people in the area about it, and Elaine had given me some uh leads and i haven't kind of fizzled out over the years but recently i've been looking back over my stuff and i thought i'd give you a call and tell you about it but uh yeah the bandage man of cannon beach i always told it was a very interesting really creepy story and legend and um uh i always wanted to learn more about it but anyways i thought that would be a cool little thing to share for your hometown legends hope you can use this i got some more stuff i'll call back about but uh thanks derek love the show I check it out whenever I can. It's on my list, and I've been listening for years. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you, Patrick. A year or so before I started the show, my good friend and I drove from Los Angeles to Seattle, stopping at as many odd roadside attractions as humanly possible. And one of those stops was Cannon Beach, Oregon. Of course, that included Haystack Rock and several filming locations for the 1985 classic film, The Goonies. There was the exterior where the restaurant used to sit, on a cliff overlooking the beach. There was the beach itself where the ORV race took place, and the opening credits. But again, I digress. The point I'm getting at is this particular area is home to the Bandage Man. And I'll admit, I did not think of the Bandage Man at the time. It's likely I hadn't even heard of the phenomenon at that point. But looking back, I really wish I'd explored around a bit. Maybe took a drive down the 101. Real slow with my back doors open. With maybe the following playing on the radio.
17: I just found the information I was looking for regarding the ghost that is seen in people's cars up here in Oregon. It is called The Bandage Man, and here's how the story goes, according to one researcher. A bit of Oregon esoterica for everyone, and it is a ghost story to boot, The Bandage Man of Cannon Beach. The Bandage Man is a phantom of a man, completely wrapped in bandages that haunts this small community. The bloody figure, who smells of rotting flesh, jumps into vehicles passing on a road outside of town notably pickup trucks or open-topped cars, but also sedans, station wagons, and even sports cars. Sometimes the mummy breaks windows or leaves behind bits of bloody or foul-smelling bandages. One legend has it that he is the ghost of a dead logger cut to pieces in a sawmill accident. The bandage man is sometimes said to eat dogs, may have murdered several people. He appears on the short approach road connecting U.S. Highway 101 to Cannon Beach. The Phantom always vanishes just before reaching town. Another clip courtesy
0: of Audio Burst. So I don't know. Maybe you're driving in your car now. At night, on a darkened stretch of highway. Hell... Maybe you're passing through the Pacific Northwest, Oregon to be specific, and just maybe you're on that short stretch of the 101 Highway, just outside of Cannon Beach. Well, if you find yourself in that oddly specific and terrifyingly coincidental location, check your back seat. And for God's sake, pick up the pace a little, because he's probably right behind you. So now it's time for you to decide which half of the US scared you the most. We'll have polls on our social media accounts, so be sure to vote for your favorite episode. And before we dim the lights on season 11, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank each and every one of you. Beginning with my amazing wife and the business end of Monsters Among Us, Sarah. Our trusted sidekick and keeper of the Facebook group, Addie. And of course our volunteers, Warren, Tony, Sarah, and John. And we all know that none of this would be possible without you. Whether you signed up for Patreon, bought some merchandise, or continued to donate to the show, even though I haven't asked in years, I'm talking to you, Teresa Z. I hope you're doing well, Teresa, and as always, thank you. Or perhaps you've reviewed the show on your podcast player of choice or simply just shared with friends. Or maybe you just listen to the show and you don't care about any of this at all. Either way, thank you for being part of the Monsters Among Us family and contributing to the Monsters Among Us universe. A universe that I promise I will continue to expand. So from the bottom of my cold black heart, thank you. I will see you all back here on September 9th for the Medical Workers Special, so be sure to get those calls in ASAP. So stay safe, be kind, and above all, keep it spooky. And have a good night.